Hello everyone, I'm Izzy Waz and welcome to Hot Stuff, where we discuss current hot topics that we think deserve your attention. From social issues to popular culture, we'll be keeping you up to date on relevant and unique Taiwan-related content every Tuesday. Now, last week, you listened to part one of my interview with Brian Hugh, a writer and activist and one of the founding editors of online magazine New Bloom. Now, today, I will bring you part two, so sit tight and enjoy. Okay, so let's talk about Taiwanese politics. Of course. Mm-hmm. Now, the two main parties in Taiwan are the DPP, Democratic Progressive Party, and the KMT, the Kuomintang. Now, currently the ruling party in Taiwan is the DPP, led by President Tsai Ing-wen. Would you be able to introduce to our listeners, maybe who are less familiar with politics in Taiwan, the roots and background of both the DPP and the KMT. Mm, Absolutely. So the DPP emerged from Taiwan's democratization movement, and it is the center-left party in Taiwanese politics. Historically, it's also uh, independence-leaning. There is actually an independence clause in the party charter, but uh, it's kind of backed away from this in recent years, way to avoid provoking China. On the other hand, the KMT, it's the uh, former authoritarian party. It came to Taiwan after the Chinese Civil War. And so in the past, it claimed they would retake the Chinese mainland. And so as that is not possible anymore with the rise of China and the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party being rather entrenched, uh, now instead it calls for unification. And so uh, it it still exists despite democratization. Uh, The DPP and the KMT were really at, uh, they've had tensions because of the fact that they have this history going back to the authoritarian period. And so the struggle continues today in the form of electoral politics, where in the past, the DPP was an outlawed party and it was the form of street protests and clashes and uh, banned publications. And that's how they kind of really fought it out politically. Mm-hmm. And I know, so New Bloom as well is focusing on kind of like younger voices and mm. youth politics. So I'm interested to know what the young, what are the younger generations in Taiwan's perception of the DPP and the KMT? Yeah, I mean, I think particularly with the kind of anxieties around just uh, Taiwan and China, that China might take over Taiwan and Taiwan loses democratic freedoms, mm-hmm. is much more caution of the KMT. And so in 2014, that's why there would be the Sun Farmament in response to the trade deal that the Ma administration, the uh, administration of the uh, former KMT president, Ma Ying-jeou, uh, that's why there'd be this pushback because of fears of its pro-China policies of economically impacting Taiwan and affecting political freedoms. Uh, but it's also kind of interesting thing about too that particularly for my generation, for example, millennials, um, for us we remember the KMT as in power, whereas for Gen Z, let's say, the KMT has been out of power their entire lives, and so it's kind of question about what even younger generations think about both the KMT and the DPP. There's definitely a rise in criticism of the DPP um, among my generation, but also those younger, and so there's also those questions. So it also does mean that it does not mean that young people are loyal to the KMT either. Uh, two years ago, they had less than. 9,000 members under 40. Uh, they claim that's up by 40% in the two years since then. But even then, that's not quite, that's not too much. It does, again, you know, we're talking about the background and the roots of, of both parties. How far are they kind of defined on their stance with China? How, how far does that issue as well kind of dominate domestic politics? Yeah, I mean, I think it comes up at different times. Uh, local elections, for example, uh, midterm elections, also known as 9-1 elections, so this occurred last year, those are much more about local politics. And oftentimes, similar to, I think, other contexts, it's about punishing the incumbent for what is perceived as sluggish economic growth or various social issues or energy development policy or other things like that. 
But then, particularly with presidential elections and legislative elections, which are national level elections, then the focus is always going to be on cross-strait issues in some sense. And so the kind of independence versus unification frame that then dominates. And so one mm -hmm. sees that now with everyone suddenly talking about what their cross-strait policy is going to be for the election. Mm. Now, do you think that's the same with the younger generations? I think so. I think mm. so. I think there's still that concern. Uh, for younger politicians, and there was definitely a wave that entered after the Sunfire movement. And so you have many young uh, politicians now, many of which were active in the movement. And so some of these are people I know. Um, yeah, I mean, they came out of this generation that's much more conscious about China. But then also, if you only talk about China, you often can't win local elections because then the voter will be like, well, what are my local issues or what about schools or roads or things like that? Mm. What about, though, you know, the, at the same time, the younger generations haven't it may be experienced the real hardship of like the martial law period. How, how far does that kind of the history of martial law period impact the younger generations, how the younger generations feel about the KMT? Or is it something that they're pretty much like disengaged with? Um, it's kind of interesting to think about. It occurs on a few different levels. I mean, for example, like my family, they're all KMT, but then people of my generation don't vote for the KMT because there's mm. concern about China. Uh, but then I think that, for example, when, when one looks at pop culture, let's say detention, which represents the white terror, uh, there are aspects of the white terror that actually don't reflect the KMT. The depiction is a bit wrong. It's more similar to the PRC and the CCP because, mm -hmm. you know, the past in Taiwan and the past in China are not exactly the same. But the future of Taiwan, let's say, if it falls to uh, CCP rules projected onto the past, um, the future of Taiwan is projected onto the past. Mm -hmm. And so you have representations of the KMT and the white terror as though they're the CCP. And they're just kind of historical details that are, that are not correct there. So it's kind of interesting, actually. And so I think Taiwan's past is figure out, figured as a kind of potential future for young people. And so the kind of past rule under the KMT is thought of as by analogy to potential future of rule under the CCP. Mm, that's very interesting. Now, there's there's this also this image, um, and this also probably co you know, comes from historical reasons um, about maybe the KMT being corrupt. Now... Why do people still vote for the KMT in, in Taiwan? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it could occur for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it is local networks. Uh, for example, farmers. Uh, there's really the fear of retribution that their fields will dry up if they vote for the DPP or they'll be shut out of distribution organizations for distributing their produce. Um, also, it's economic, I think, just hopes on the Chinese market. Uh, some people are very dependent on the Chinese market for factories or for selling their produce or whatever. Um, anything from kind of factory owners that make electronics to farmers or whatever. Uh, sometimes historical or cultural reasons that they're loyal to the party and uh, they identify the values of the party or the kind of vision of the nation that they feel it embodies. Or they have nostalgia for the kind of past authoritarian period in which there's more economic prosperity or that's what how they remember it. Uh, but then I think also just uh, sometimes it's not actually always thought of in cross-trade relations. It's not that it's mm -hmm. thought that the KMT is so dangerous there. And so they will vote for it thinking that, well, it's not actually that going to push us that close to China. And mm. so that kind of concern comes up at different moments. And I think I saw actually, I can't, I can't remember from where, but that um, time, some Taiwanese people were kind of getting frustrated that the issue on China and everything was taking up so much of the conversation in, in politics when they felt there were a lot of other issues that need to be dealt with. Absolutely. And so during uh, during national elections, then it's very difficult to talk about local issues or mm -hmm. other social issues. And so 
it's very then difficult to oppose, let's say, the DPP on some issues because of the fact that it's the party that is more pro-Taiwan sovereignty. And so then if it's actually taking a different stance on an issue, then, for example, and you're critical of the DPP on this issue, but may be supportive of it on cross-strait issues, they only get criticized as potentially supporting or, or backing the KMT or unwilling playing into the hands of the KMT. And so then it becomes hard to have a kind of more nuanced, less polarized stance, or when she gets to be supportive of a, po- a party on cross-strait issues, but not other issues, for example. Mm. The main split is independence versus unification, and yet at the same time, both parties have backed away from their historic stances. Um, the DPP is not as pro-independence as it was in the past. Now it's pro-status quo. Mm-hmm. The KMT was once about taking over the Chinese mainland. Now they're fine reunifying under whatever circumstances. But then I think, for example, the left-wing and right-wing substrate, the DPP is the center-left party and the KMT is the center-right. Uh, and I think it's because the KMT was an establishment. It was a party that existed. And the DPP, it was also, it was influenced by the new left when it came of age, basically, the 1960s and 70s. So there's much more of this kind of left-wing discourse floating around. Uh, but the basis for the DPP is opposing the KMT. And so there's a left-wing and there's a right-wing to the party. And so there's that. But also because of this identity issue within the KMT, some of the younger people are more progressive on social issues. But they're in a conservative party or an overall conservative party because of their kind of cultural identification with China. So would you say the KMT now, their, their policies is very different to the KMT um, during like White Terror? Um, yes, though, the generation that is in power now in the KMT did come of age then. And so it is a bit of an odd thing in which, for example, politicians that were opposed to democracy are now running in democratic elections and sometimes <laughs> winning, actually. So it is a paradox there. But uh, it is it is quite interesting uh, regarding some of these shifts. There are a lot of things that are a bit hard to explain, for example, why so many veterans will go to China and get implicated in spying cases. Because literally, they fought against China <laughs> and their friends were all killed in the war by the PLA. And so now suddenly they're going there and giving away secrets and things like that. So there's a there's an odd shift there. And there also are some members of the Pan Blue camp that feel betrayed by the party because they have become like this. Has the KMT managed to rid themselves as such of their the reputation of from the White Terror? That that's a that's a period that you know really had a very um, harrowing impact on a lot of people. And I was interested how um, you know coming from abroad, I was like, how does a party that had had this history, how are they still? you know, one of the biggest parties in Taiwan. Have they managed to kind of get away from that history? Um, it's tough. I think in the past, practically, uh, particularly under Mindzio, they were more willing to make concessions on, for example, past misdeeds and apologize and so forth. But now, really after Sun Farmer, they've really dug their heels in. And so there's much more polarization in which, for example, they'll claim the DPP is carrying a green terror that's worse than white terror. Where In that case, I wonder where all the dead bodies are and tens of thousands mm. of dead. So actually, there's much more denialism uh, also, among some of the older generation, they still do believe what they were taught in schools by the KMT. And so, for example, uh, the U.S. was suddenly Taiwan's ally after World War II, but previously the U.S. was fighting Taiwan, which was then a Japanese colony, and that included conducting air raids on Taiwan, for example. And so when the KMT got to Taiwan, they would tell the kids that all well, these bullet holes in the walls and the city, they're actually from the Japanese firing on Taiwan, which does not make a lot of sense because the Japanese <laughs> control Taiwan. But there's still propaganda around in that sense, and older right. generations still do believe that. Let's talk more about the future then um, of kind of politics in Taiwan. Do you think the GPP is likely to stay in power for the next election in 2024? I think so, uh, but it really does depend, I think, on the KMT. And I think that it might be more due 
due to the KMT kind of making missteps rather than DPP succeeding or crafting a winning message there. Uh, there's too much infighting with the KMT right now. They are prone to infighting. Both parties are, but the KMT does not seem to be getting their act together in a way. Mm. And what do you think then, let's say a DPP UN, what would that mean for Taiwan-China relations? So, I mean, William Lai is the presidential candidate of the DPP now, uh, but he is trying to be much more moderate on cross-strait relations. He made comments, for example, at uh, Gu Guaming, uh, the Taiwanese Independence Advocates uh, Memorial Service, that Taiwan and China can be brothers. And so that's actually kind of a moderate stance and signaling to the U.S. and also China. But China probably still frame him as a pro-independence provocateur. I think that will not change. They will look for a pretext to play him up as a provocateur and conduct military exercises and things of that sort. Mm -hmm. But then I think particularly he'll try to signal to the uh, international world that he's actually quite moderate on these things, or that's how he's framing himself now. Mm -hmm. And how would you feel about that if he, he came to uh, be leading the DPP? Um, I think that uh, it is actually quite interesting because it does seem like there's no other candidate at present. And... Uh, one of the most popular KMT candidates is the new Taipei mayor, Ho Yoing. And he was very popular for a while because of the fact that he framed himself as not having a particular specific stance on cross-strait relations and sort of not about politicking, about not about charismatic pol policy or uh, personality, rather, but as kind of policy and being more moderate and kind of reserved. But it's not working out now because I think there's a sense of crisis. And so people turn towards the more charismatic leader figures that seem to offer a sense of vision. And so... William Lai, though he's more partisan because of his uh, past expressions of support for Taiwanese independence, perhaps fits that persona that people are looking for for a leader right now. And that, that actually kind of surprises me. Mm. But uh, I don't have an opinion either way, but I think that his persona is actually a bit working towards the moment. So does it become then your, your voting not for you, who you think will do a really amazing job, but you don't want the other choice? Yeah, I think so. I think particularly with the uh, independence versus unification split is often that. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's tough there. <laughs> mm. And then let's talk about it the other way around. What about um, if the KMT uh, came to be the ruling party? Um, what would that mean for Taiwan-China relations? The KMT, I think the issue is that they would get a bit too overconfident. They would immediately think they have the mandate of the population and push Taiwan too close to China in a way, uh, trying to advance bills, for example, that are stalled in the past, such as the CSSTA or whatever. Um, and so then that provoked fears. And sometimes their reaction as a party is a bit strange. After the uh, visit to Taiwan of U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, and then China launches all these military exercises, they immediately dispatch the vice chair to China. Uh, that's to reinforce the claim that they're the only party in Taiwan able to negotiate with China, and so they should be in power. But then that provoked backlash from younger people in the party who were like, wait, this will actually cause us to be looked at as pro-China. <laughs> this is a really bad idea. And so then they did this anyway, and they kept doing it. And so I think they get a bit overconfident there uh, and lean too heavily into it when they're in power. Now, voters who uh, kind of are in favor of keeping the, the situation as it is, mm. you know, maybe they're worried about potential like war or as such. Would they be more leaning towards voting DPP or KMT? I think right now, I think uh, I think Taiwanese voters or poll after poll rather overwhelmingly shows that they support the status quo. Mm. And so they vote for the party they think maintains stability. And so then it really does depend on which party is seen as offering stability. If it's the DPP, they will vote for the DPP. If it's the KMT, they'll vote for the KMT. Mm. So, and as as the current situation as it is, which one do you think offers that more? Well, I mean, personally, I think the DPP, but uh, it really does depend because the KMT also realizes. So they're trying to frame it now as the DPP is the party of war, that through strengthening relations with the U.S. or uh, Western powers, then that will lead to provocations. Uh, and then China will take this as a pretext to carry out some military action. 
Uh, for example, even Ukraine will be framed the same way, that they got too close to NATO and the U.S. Right. That's why Russia did this. Mm-hmm. And so the KMT then frames themselves as the party of peace. Okay. Now, do they, do they still think democracy is important? They, they say that, but uh, it is it is one of those things. And actually, it's interesting, too, because the KMT will be critical of one country, two systems, for example, but mm-hmm. then claim they uphold the 1992 consensus. And so the ideas are similar, but they try to draw kind of a line because being depicted as too close to China or wanting a system in which you lose your system to your democratic system to China, that's a bad thing. And so they, they also don't want to be seen as such. You recently wrote an article about the links between organized crime and politics in Taiwan. Mm. So it's about a former DPP county councillor was sentenced for drug smuggling. Um, and then also I've read about um, White White Wolf or Zhang Anhe, um, mm. who was previously like high up in the Bamboo Union, a really like mm. famous gang as such. Yeah. And are they part of the triads? Uh, they're all considered triads. Right, yeah. okay. I'm really interested in this, this link because it's something very different from the UK. And how did there come to be this link between organized crime and politics? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, it does often go back to the authoritarian period that after a certain point, the KMT, the party state was uh, rigging votes and vote buying and there's corruption in the countryside, particularly it's a way to maintain social control. But then at a certain point, the state security forces were no longer as powerful. So actually it was under Li Donghui that the KMT, as he was the president of the KMT then, and of Taiwan, uh, started to lean much more into organized crime and using that as a way to mobilize votes and so forth. And so I think also particularly after, uh, the KMT has always had links to organized crime, mm. uh, going back to one's China, but then when it came to Taiwan, it's another way to maintain social control. And so there's that. But uh, now particularly there's, it's true that both camps have links to organized crime. And so the DPP is also trying to clean itself up. Um, there's a case that after Chen Shibian took power, and that uh, led to much more elements of organized crime entering the party because they are viewed as now in power. And so they try to cozy up to who's in power. But the DPP also does need to maintain those links for winning elections as well, because this is a way to mobilize votes, too. Mm-hmm. And so the DPP also then start to have these links. And so you have these cases of corruption on both sides. I mean, I think that that's also why many young people around the time of the Sun Fire Movement and afterwards are critical of the DPP because there's a perception the DPP got too close to organized crime. And how how do how can organized crime mobilize votes? Um, sometimes it is intimidation, but then I think also it can just be through, for example, uh, clientless networks that they're all part of the economic kind of interest of voting for this candidate. So they might get bids, for example, mm-hmm. uh, for companies they own or shell companies and things like that. And so that allows for uh, mobilizing votes in this way. Can we talk more about this figure, White Wolf? Mm, that's right. Because um, I found, yeah, I found it um, him very uh interesting to read about and could, mm. would you mind telling us more about about this figure i mean he was uh, seen as the leader of the bamboo union which is one of taiwan's largest gangs um it's also the kind of more pro-china gang i mean even the gangs actually have an identity split where they start to develop one as time went on yeah that's another really interesting <laughs> thing yeah 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 and he uh committed political assassinations with the kmt during the authoritarian period he's implicated in the murder of henry Liu, who is a Chinese american journalist um taiwanese but immigrated to the u.s and that did not work well for the KMT because it occurred in the U.S. Uh, and those two step crossing the line, the FBI got involved and so forth. And so he was sent to jail. Uh, but then after he got out of jail, he reinvented himself as a pro-China politician. And so now he runs for office. He's also very highly educated. He did several MAs when he was in jail. Um, and so people just talk about that, how he's so, uh, you know, unexpectedly cultured, I think, for mm. a gangster. <laughs> <laughs> and how did how did Taiwanese people feel about this when he was having a go at politics? 
Uh, he, some people fear him, and he definitely is a scary figure in that sense because there's the links uh, and so forth. And uh, you know, he also ties groups in China. The Bamboo Union often mobilizes, uh, for example, when. For example, when Joshua Wong of Hong Kong fame came to Taiwan in the past, the Bamboo Union gang would appear at the airport and try to attack him. Uh, there were ca- cases, for example, in which student demonstrators on the campus of National Taiwan University were attacked by Bamboo Union gangsters, one of which was actually Zhang Anle's son. Oh, uh, yeah, so yeah, saw that. That's right. And more, more, is that because of the um, how they feel about China, their um, identity with China? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he also can be a clownish figure at times in terms of how he frames himself in, or the stunts he pulls off, appearing in front of the DPP headquarters while dressed in Japanese imperial costume, for example, <laughs> because they claim the DPP are all Japanese running dogs. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a pretty kind of unique situation. Is there any kind of viewpoint that he is closer to like real people as opposed to being more of like the politically elite um so that's sometimes how people defend gangster politics for example that they're close mm-hmm. to the regular people and that young people are all implicated in gangs somehow gangs are often linked to temples for example yeah so, yeah and uh temples often you have politicians uh, as well i mean they go there to pray and uh, you have some of offices for uh bureau chiefs outside of temples and so all this stuff kind of gets tied together in some way i mean uh for example the Datia Matsu pilgrimage the head of the temple of that, uh, Yan Jingbiao, is uh, well known as a gangster, and he was a former legislator. And so he has a history of firearms possession, attempted murder, assault, uh, and, and charges of that sort. But it's also not an obstacle to holding office or winning office. The Miaoli County Magistrate, for example, the current one, was implicated in, in gang killings. And he still won office despite serving time in jail for beating someone to death in a restaurant in Taipei. Well, so let's talk more about this link between... Now we've got, you know, organized crime and politics and then this other element of religion. So, you know, this this interconnection between these three aspects. Now, how how did the connection with religion come into play? And how widespread is this? It's actually, it's quite interesting there because gangs often are linked to the working class and so are temples and folk religion because folk religion was always never viewed as elevated. It's the thing of the common people. Uh, and so oftentimes you'll have gangs recruiting from the kind of street kids that are hanging out at temples and the kind of dance troops that temples uh, are, are part of too. Then there's kind of link with gangs. So even in like the 1990s or 2000s, for example, you'll have a lot of, uh, for example, EDM or club music being brought in temples and you have famous now representative phenomenon of Taiwan, like the uh, electro electronic techno prince, you know, the dance when they have the uh, white gloves and the, the uh, kind of, you know, dance, electronic music dance. And that's because a lot of the temple dancers were kids that went to clubs and were linked to gangs and things like that and did drugs and they brought what they liked into temple culture. And so that's why you have this kind of odd phenomenon. Now this is something that has become very iconic of Taiwan. Mm. Uh, and so there, there's a link there. And so it's been kind of culturally in the substrate. And uh, it is it is one of those issues. So do you think it's a bad thing? Well, it's part of life, I guess. And <laughs> it, is, it is part of life. Yeah. <laughs> it's sometimes a little too visible now. I mean, that's why there's all the calls for crackdown after gangs were holding banquets in the Marriott. If I oh, yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what, what effect then would you say um, that th- the fact that these aspects can be so interlinked, what effect does that have on today's society? Um, I think the danger then is that basically politicians have to rely on gangs to mobilize votes sometimes, and it leads to corruption on both major political camps. Mm. Uh, and in parts of town, then, you do have bars and so forth paying protection fees, or you have uh, beatings occurring outside of nightclubs, and that does happen in parts of even Taipei. It's more prevalent as you get outside of Taipei. Uh, there's much more media exposure on tai- tai- Taipei and uh, kind of international media, but then you get to other parts of Taiwan, and it's it's, it's really, really out there. Uh, very, very visible. And so it's it's part of life and it's hard to actually change this. About It's very entrenched at this point.
Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I found this really super interesting chat and I really appreciate you being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks everyone for listening to Hot Stuff. I will see you next week. Bye. (laughs)